to my wife a couple months ago, and I were watching um, <clears throat> the comedy Liar Liar uh, on TBS. And um, if you don't know how the movie sort of lays out, it's a cute premise of this, of this uh, little greasy kind of lying uh, lawyer uh, who sort of uh, fails to come through on his promises to his uh, young son uh, so many times that at his next birthday party, he makes a wish that for just one day, his father could not tell a lie. And of course, the hilarity ensues when the wish comes true. Uh, and played by Jim uh, Carrey, the character sort of comes face to face with this curse while still trying to carry on his uh, slimy lawyer ways at the same time. But as, you, as the movie kind of moves on, you realize that what's happening is the father is really confronting himself. And he realizes that his lying starts to come home to him uh, when it leads to this climactic moment in a final court scene. Uh, the, the, the character uh, Fletcher Reed has been trying to sort of uh, find his way through an unfair divorce settlement for a woman. And in a dramatic twist, he's able to do so uh, by, uh, by telling the truth at one moment. Uh, but what has he gained? He realizes that the wife is a terrible mother and suddenly sees that even when he tells lies, when he can't tell lies, there's a problem underneath with him. It still remains. And so after winning the case on behalf of this lying woman, he gets into an altercation with the judge <laughs> about the judgment that he just made to win his case. And he screams at the judge, telling him that he's made the wrong decision for the ultimate health of this family. And so the big moment for me comes when the judge sort of looks down after they yelled at each other. He looks at him and he says, Mr. Reed, one more word out of you and I'll hold you in contempt. And Reed looks up and says, I hold myself in contempt. Why should you be any different? Now that's the moment in the movie where I get a big lump in my throat. And I started wondering why. And I think I've come to realize that the reason why is because the show did a good job at what we might call character development. Every great story I would submit to you does a good job in developing great characters. You know, usually in some sort of story, there's an amount of time introducing you to the character, what's going on in their life and what makes their life worth looking at. Well, the Bible actually does the same thing when it brings us and presents to us the main character of the Bible, which is mankind, the crown of his creation. And so a good storyteller will use characterization to make people seem real to the reader. Uh, it makes what the story, it makes the story relatable. And so in, rarely is the Bible going to come home to you, therefore, if you don't understand what's happening to the main characters. I mean, when Fletcher Reed screams, I hold myself in contempt, I, get, I am moved by that because I see myself through his eyes. I know what that feels like to hold myself in contempt, and I'm moved by it. Well, if you're just joining us, we're studying uh, this summer this look at, the, at really the doctrine of Scripture as it comes to us as a story. And what we find, therefore, is that the Bible will never ring true for you unless you begin to see yourself in it, to see yourself in the story. And my premise is that this is exactly what the Bible intends to happen to you while you read it. We found last week that God decided that the crown of his creation would be mankind. And what we get in the verses to follow is what is it that distinguishes mankind? What is it that makes him unique? And so I would ask you that, this question, that, that question this morning. 
What is it that constitutes you? (laughs) What makes you tick? What are you about? Because the Bible gives us this answer through what I'm going to unpack this morning as five descriptions. I'll be honest with you, each one of these individual descriptions could be a sermon unto themselves. I'm going to spare you that, but I wanted to simply let this wash past you what we get in these verses about how God has designed us as human beings. See if it measures up to how you think of yourself. Five things. Man is a reflector. Man is a ruler. He is a worker. He's a miner. And then finally, he is a rester. I know rester is not a word. Bear with me. Number one, he is a reflector. Look at verse 26. The first word that jumps out at you there is the word image. Now look, when the Bible uses that word image, it's describing something akin to a mirror uh, or reflection of some type. And so God says right out of the gate, I'm creating man so that he can be a reflection of what I am essentially, namely the glorious and creator God. Our own statement of faith that our denomination has in the Westminster Shorter Catechism opens with this very thought. What is man's primary purpose? Man's primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That word glorify there means to reflect him. And by reflecting his glory, we enter into this deep and powerful delight and intimacy that we have in fellowship with God. What God is establishing here is that whatever fellowship exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I am inviting man into that to partake of that by being a mirror of my glory. It's amazing. And so when you wrap your mind around this, you begin to realize that you are a mirror whether you acknowledge it or not. The primary explanation, I would argue, for why you do what you do is because you're mirroring something. One theologian put it this way. He said, you become like what you worship in the Bible. Why? Because you were created to be a mirror, to reflect something to the watching world. There's a sense in which you are fundamentally a contingent being, essentially known and identified by what it is is you're reflecting to the world around you. There's a whole lot more that we could say about this, but I'm going to zip past it and simply say this. Given the privilege of being a reflector of God's glory, does this come anywhere close to how you see yourself as a Christian and the definition of what it means to be a Christian? I've been in Oxford now for 20 years. I, I, I still think that there's a, a generalized understanding about Christianity that goes something like this. Well, you know, I mean, I go to church. I pray. I hope somebody's listening when I pray. Um, I try to be good. I'm really not sure if I'm ever really going to be good enough, but I I, I get a sense of God on a nice nature walk or something, and I see a beautiful sunset. Of course I'm a Christian. Is that what it means? (laughs) But according to Genesis 1 here, we are called up into his arms, into an intimacy of to overflow with his light and an assurance with his love, not some sort of general, you know, I hope he loves me and maybe I'll go to heaven one day when I die kind of relationship. (laughs) Is that your idea of Christianity? Because it's not Christianity. In other words, in order for us to be completely human, man must be a worshiper of God and God alone. True worship, like I've said a bunch of times before, is nothing more than finding delight in something. (laughs) And we give everything to it. We give our time and our money and our resources to it. 
And so you actually can change your perspective a lot on your hobbies or maybe even your habits in life by casting them in this rubric of uh, worship as a mirror. Um, Why do I spend that long on that website? Answer, because you're worshiping. Why do I spend that much time daydreaming about that shopping spree? Answer, because you are worshiping. Because you found delight in the praise that comes from your definition of a of being a successful business person or being the, the absolute super mom or you know, being one of the popular insiders, whatever. Those things come to us in the form of worship. But the tragedy is you'll never find the delight that you were meant to have until it comes from walking with God. More on that in just a second. But the first point is, is that we are reflectors by nature, worshipers. Number two, secondly, we are rulers as well. The second part of what God says in verse 26 says this, let them have dominion. The word translated dominion is the Hebrew word radah. Uh, and 13 times in the Old Testament, that word is translated to rule. So what we find is, is man at the very beginning is called to rule. He is called to subjugate the creation around him. Uh, last week we referred to Psalm 8, and it even came up in our, our reading this morning. Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6, where it says, You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him radah over the works of your hands, ruler over those works, and you put everything under his feet. Now look, once you really start to wrap your mind around man as a ruler, like there's not a, there's not a whole lot that will renovate your sort of internal view of yourself than verses like this. And I only have time to mention two ways. One, this is an amazing declaration of man's dignity. And number two, it ought to get us very interested in talking about man's responsibility to the world around him. Very briefly. This, Genesis 1 is teaching us that human beings, by virtue of being a human being, are inherently valuable. As God rules over all, man is to be a sub-ruler, as it were, a vice-regent. The point being, mankind matters. And honestly, this is a point that's not been very obvious in the last century. Now has it? (laughs) You know, the 1900s are going to go down as one of the bloodiest, uh, most violent, destructive centuries in mankind's short history. But what I want you to see, though, is all of that violence, all of that destructiveness is based upon a way of looking at each other, an understanding of what it means to be a human being, uh, what we might call a... um, a false anthropology. Isn't that what anthropology is? The study of man? And what we might say is that if we are just nothing more than sound and fury signifying nothing, then who cares who kills who? If that's the foundation of what it means for us. No wonder we're as depressed and medicated as we are. But I'll also say you really don't have to look that far to see that a Christian anthropology has fallen on a little bit of hard times in our particular day, has it not? especially in the West. And I'm, I'm going to put this rather starkly. Bear with me. A Christian is a person who refuses to participate and certainly even approve of a chant at a rally that calls for someone to be shipped back to their own country. We don't talk that way. <laughs> we don't talk that way about other images of God. And if that offends your, your, your delicate political sensibilities, then it's no less offensive than referring to an entirety of another political party as a, as a basket of deplorables. 
We don't talk that way. Because what we have in Jesus' view here, in the Bible's view of human beings is, I am called to respect the image of God wherever it shows up. How about this one? Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking to his people about things that you say to one another. And at one point he says, if you call your brother, if you look at him and say, you fool, then you are in danger of the fires of hell. First time you read that, you're like, ooh, who did I call a fool? You get nervous about what, what comes out of me when I refer to people. Why did that little slip of the tongue? Why are you so mad at that, Jesus? And the answer, of course, is at that moment, what is suggestive about the way I view you and my, me in comparison to you by referring to you as such? Jesus says you're dangerously close to having a false view of yourself when you see how you treat the people around you, even by the names that you call them. I watched a particularly uh, bleak World War II movie a couple of years ago uh, that had a, had a scene of a young recruit who was showing up into a new battalion uh, of, a, of a, um, a tank battalion. And, and a very hardened soldier who had already been on the battlefield for a number of months came up to him and started to confront him about what he was about to see. And he walks up to this young recruit and he goes, man, just wait until you see it. And the recruit says, see what? He leans into his face and he says, what a man can do to another man. <laughs> Have you ever stopped and been in amazement at what we are capable of doing to each other? You know, look, look, forget the broad political realm that, that I've upset you all by at this point. In 25 years of ordained ministry, I can tell you right now that the most cruel things that I've heard one person say to another person, the ugliest things, the meanest things, have been between married people. You ever been amazed at the kind of things that people can say to each other? May not have to look that very far. How easy it is to forget this. So, but here's the deal. Mankind is made to be a ruler. And therefore he is infused with dignity. But secondly, he's also infused with a responsibility, isn't he? I wish we had time to develop this, but we don't. I made some of you uncomfortable when I said that man was called to subjugate the creation around him. I don't like that kind of language, but we find... In Genesis chapter 2, that man is called, Adam is called to work and to care for the garden, for his environment. In other words, he wasn't allowed to abuse the created order. And I think there's actually a fair amount of work to be done of saying, what does it look like to have a Christian view of the environment? There's a whole lot of work that needs to be done. Ironically, I think for so many people in our day who get upset about seeing the environment around us are themselves materialists. And I would argue that materialism is not a very good anthropology to actually enjoy the sort of creation around us. But again, like I said, I digress. Another sermon for another time. So the Bible says that we are reflectors, worshipers. Number two, it says that we are rulers. Thirdly, it says that we are workers. Adam in chapter two is called to work the garden. You know, in, um, uh, just to dredge up some old memories here, in, in, in uh, the Pandora's box uh, mythology, from Greek mythology, do you remember what comes out of Pandora's box when it gets opened? Death comes out, decay comes out, and work comes out. Looks like the Greeks are kind of tipping their hand on what they think of work. Uh, work is evil in and of itself. The fact that I have to work is awful. But in Genesis 1, we find that man is called to work because God works. It's a way of mirroring his image and what he's done in us. 
Um, but how many of our fantasies about heaven <laughs> are sort of wrapped up in a cessation of work where we think we're going to kind of be done with it by that time? That's actually not the Bible's view. Work is actually a good thing. I, I would really warmly commend to you a book called Every Good Endeavor uh, uh, by Tim Keller about the Bible's view of work and how, it, how we function as that per- particular uh, office. And he compares and contrasts uh, the, the capitalistic view of work versus the communistic view of work. He says, on the one hand, you've got the capitalist who, who values uh, the, uh, the skilled worker and undervalues one that they determine to be unskilled. And in a culture here in the West, we value people that produce, don't we? Uh, the people who, financial wizards who make money. Uh, uh, businessmen who make a product, uh, corporate America. But yet we undervalue, at least in terms of how much we pay them, people that work in the immaterial, you know, uh, artists, teachers. <laughs> they tend to be on the low end of the totem pole when it comes to our financial value of those people. But on the other hand, you have the communistic view that says the professional is the one that you really need to look down on because he's an elitist. He breaks the unity of mankind by sort of distinguishing himself from the collective. Well, now we know that Karl Marx's theories were built on a fundamentally atheistic view of the world, that it took the USSR at least 70 years to realize uh, if there is no God, then who cares about equity? So it ate its own tail, did it not? But the wisdom, though, that comes across here is how the Bible critiques both systems. Because the Bible says all work has dignity because God works. In that sense, all work is a calling of God to satisfy something that God put in us as a need to work. You're wired with it, y'all. The need to feel like I'm moving, that I'm producing, I'm creating. And so my question is, do you have a job right now that you think and you consider to be menial? Does it feel small to you? I I can't count how many times I've spoken to to young mommies who have their, their hands just sort of you know, elbow deep into dirty diapers. And they're looking around being like, you know, I just, I feel like I'm just wasting my life. This is, this is just, this is a job for a low life <laughs> doing this. But there's some encouragement that comes from realizing that God actually has dirt underneath his fingernails. He declares in that sense that there's beauty in all work and dignifying all work. But you know what that means? It means that we can quit distinguishing between the really spiritual jobs over here and the secular jobs over here. <laughs> I, I was on campus for 17 years and had this conversation 50 times where college students would be ready to go do a summer, um, summer project, uh, uh, summer uh, ministry experience or whatnot. And uh, they, they would go. And it was a great opportunity to go serve in a great way. But the way they would talk about it, say, well, you know, on the one hand, I had my summer law internship And then I had God on the other one, and I chose for God. And I always think, well, okay, Um, glad you're doing what you want to do. (laughs) But there's nothing unspiritual about a lawyer sort of looking and saying, I'm coming here to sort of bring God's rule manifest in this particular area. Those aren't sub sort of categories. Nothing's more spiritual about being a minister than about being an accountant or a doctor or a ditch digger, whatever. God honors in that sense all work that is done for his glory in his kingdom. So mankind are reflectors, they're rulers and workers. Fourthly, they are miners, M-I-N-E-R-S. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 28. Verse 28 is the location. This is a great little place to make a note on your device or outside, your, on, outside of your Bible. That this is what theologians call the cultural mandate. Okay? 
In other words, it's a command that God gives to man to go out and to discover this, this unlimited and as of yet undiscovered treasure of potentiality. In other words, God made the world in such a way that he's like, you won't believe what you're able to do with what I've implanted out there. Now go knock yourself out. <laughs> go find it. Go discover it. And so this includes our adventures into the infinitely small or into the sort of immeasurably large, like Scott was praying this morning. I love, it to, I love reading people's online reactions to whenever NASA publishes the, uh, the deep space photos from the Hubble telescope. Have y'all seen these things? You know, they'll point the Hubble telescope at like one particular little tiny section of the universe. And like the photograph has like millions of galaxies inside the one little photograph in this tiny sliver. <laughs> and you always get like scientists trying to be like, okay, I'm really not sure how to tell you how big the universe is, but it's like crazy big. Like it's really, 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 really big. And they're blown away. And what's amazing to me is the online commenters are constantly saying things like, man, we are nothing <laughs> in the universe. It's like they're glorying in their insignificance and somehow that brings them comfort. But the Christian actually looks at that deep space thing and is like, hey, all that is is uncharted territory. And my assumption is, is that we've got an eternity in heaven to unpack everything that he stored out there that you and I couldn't even dream of right now. That's how we look at that. And you know what's crazy? It's all for me. He put it up together for us. Look, here's the point. Your work is a calling, no matter how mundane you think that it is. And wherever we are going to sort of pick up God's work of creation, which we can't do creation, but we can do what Tolkien calls sub-creation. You ever heard him refer to that? He's the only one that could be the creator, but I come along behind him and I make little things myself. So that means that whether you're a businessman sort of developing a new product, whether you're an artist who's taking elements and creating fresh perspectives, maybe you're a businessman taking over a failing department that's in trouble and you turn it around so that you create stability and, and jobs that people can keep. Maybe you're a new mommy who takes a tiny little baby and is just trying to set some parameters so that it maybe sets on a path to flourish in its life. Maybe you're a, fa a teacher who's bringing out kids' potential to give them a sense of vision and hope. Maybe you're a medical professional that takes a broken body and helps to bring healing and order found myself waxing yesterday on the beauty of landscape architects. Pointing at Mark down here, the landscape architect. I'm just being able to make, to make your backyard beautiful. <laughs> it's pleasing to look at. Every Christian has to ask this question, what will I do? What tiny little corner of the world will I take the chaos and bring order? That's beautiful. So we're reflectors, we're rulers, we're workers, we're miners. And finally, and almost most importantly, we are resters. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2 there. Because this passage is a whole lot more than just the basis of the Lord's command to rest on, uh, on Sunday. It's not less than that by any means. But it says something very powerful about the fact that deep inside of your heart of hearts, there is a need, not just for a nap, but, but for a deep REM of the soul, if you will. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 is the famous passage where it says this, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, 
just as God did from his. Did you see what happened there? The writer of Hebrews connects for us the sort of work that God was doing in creation and the work that God came to do in Christ on the cross. (laughs) In other words, God stands up at, at at the end of creation and says, it is finished and announces his blessing over it. And then, of course, years later, Jesus comes and looks over his work and says, it is finished. God, on the one hand, looks at Genesis and sort of declares it to be finished so that we can glory in that rest. Jesus comes along to sort of announce it's finished in order to help us sort of gain and attain that rest. He wins it for us. I mean, think about Jesus' job. He came to establish perfection and righteousness. He came to obey for you. He came to announce that the only approval that you really need is God's approval. And so literally, God comes along to justify your existence and what he did on the cross. And so the point of the whole Bible is that until you know that rest, you're going to be a person who struggles with character. Why? Because you'll always be drawing your meaning off of things that can't sustain it. And in that world, your work is a tyranny and you can't rest. You're never settled. There's no peace. But when, you, but when you know Christ, the writer of Hebrews is saying, then you can suddenly realize that this is not about you. This is not about me. I can rest. And therefore, when, now that I'm resting, I can enjoy things for their own sake because I don't need them. I've already had my ultimate need met. And as it turns out, this is what God had in mind from the very beginning, an army of completely secure and confident image bearers who are mirroring his glory to the whole world. That's what you are as a character in God's eyes. There's a guy named Oz Guinness who wrote a book called The Call, where he tells a story about the great saxophone master, uh, John Coltrane. Um, Coltrane, uh, most famous album, I think most critics would agree, is is A a Love Supreme. You ought to give it a listen. It's It's a little different, but you ought to give it a listen. Well, lots of people don't realize that a love supreme was kind of born out of a huge spiritual experience that Coltrane had in the late 1950s. And he put it in the liner notes of the album where he says this, listen to this. He says, during the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, and more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through my music. I feel this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. A a reporter said that after performing a Love Supreme one night at at a club in New York, he left the stage and he heard him say to himself, Nunc Dominus, which is a little Latin phrase that means I can, I can be finished now. I'm done now. That phrase came up again in Luke chapter 2 in the Latin translation of the New Testament when Simeon, remember Simeon who was waiting for the baby Jesus to come along and then when he sees him, he's like, ah, Dominus, I can now die in peace because I've seen God's promises. You see, Coltrane had spent a number of years in the San Francisco drug scene and nearly died of a fatal overdose, but through it all led into an encounter with God. And he sort of entered into this powerful rest. And what Coltrane was saying is, is I can go now. I know I was put on this earth to do certain things and it's to play music. 
Now that I've seen his grace, I can do it in a way in which I couldn't before. Where did he get that poise? Because when he realized who he was, that God loved him, that life was no longer about him, he could enjoy the music. And it's only when you find out who you are, it turns out, that you can sort of live that kind of life. So here's my question. (laughs) To what degree do these character traits describe how you see you? Does it this way, does leaving this way sort of uh, line up with how God develops his characters in the Bible? Because if it doesn't, my guess is the Bible is awfully boring for you because you've not seen yourself in these people as we're going to continue to study in the weeks to come. But you can ha- you have a promise this morning that if you can see yourself in them, then you're on a giant adventure of a story that actually ends in a happy ending. Stay tuned. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, give us the grace to be able to see ourselves. How it's weird even to talk about seeing ourselves in a certain way. But we pray that by your spirit, you would give us a perspective on ourselves that we couldn't have had when we came in here because it didn't come from the outside from your word. And so we ask, Father, this morning that we would see with clarity, even as we sing praises to you, you would give us a taste of who we really are and how you really see us. Would you grant us that grace? We ask it in Jesus' name. Yeah.